Welcome to Her Skin, a podcast about the minority experience. I'm Abby Chinaya. A year ago, I started a photography series called Light Skin, Dark Skin, following the stories of brown women and their experiences with colorism. Now, I'm taking things a step further. I'm having discussions about diversity, skin color, race, inclusivity, and everything in between. In this episode, I sit down with Kiwi actress Amanda Grace Leo. We talk about her Peranakan Chinese Singaporean heritage, growing up in Singapore, and her upcoming project, Motherland, New Zealand's first Asian cabaret. So thank you so much for being part of Her Skin. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm very excited to be here. Obviously, I'm biased because I'm your friend (laughs) and I'm a huge fan of your work. And I think you're doing so much for the minority platform and migrant voices and really, really glad to be talking to you today. So I wanted to get into it and talk about your acting. Mm. And I wanted to know why and how did you get into acting? I think I always loved acting from a very young age. So I was involved in like school musicals growing up. And then when my parents moved me back, uh, moved me from New Zealand to Singapore when I was nine. So I was born in Aotearoa, Tamaki, Makoto. Um, acting became this thing that I, I hadn't done for ages up until probably, you know, 14 or 15 when I got involved in the drama club. And I think it really became a way to express myself, particularly in Singaporean society. So they took a really Kiwi kid and put them, put, you know, me and my siblings in in a Singaporean environment, which of course you would kind of be familiar with having grown up in Malaysia. And I think there wasn't a lot of room at the time for my voice. So acting became a vehicle for that. But I think I was, you know, to be honest, I was always really fascinated by two things. Um, film and, uh, I was going to say, film and storytelling. So, yeah, it became a way for me to reclaim my voice and express myself in a way that was not judged so much and probably was celebrated more. How old were you when you went back to Singapore? Nine. Nine years old. Mm. What was that like, integrating into Singaporean society at that age? It was pretty hard. I was going to say it's actually pretty, pretty awful. Now, I wouldn't take anything back because it's really helped me connect with my papa and my roots. But I think, you know, taking someone who's in the middle of puberty or just about to hit puberty and taking them from quite a westernized society, especially in New Zealand where things are really, really relaxed, you know, childhood was spent running around, playing on the trampoline, having fun at school and putting them in quite a strict academic system and the, you know, the Singaporean rat race was quite difficult. And I think societally as well, because I am Asian, I'm Chinese, right? Everyone just expected me to slot in and look and be like a Singaporean Chinese girl, which is a bit more demure, less outspoken, knows her place, etc., etc. So I don't think anyone really knew what to do with a very exuberant, outspoken, loud, Kiwi Chinese girl. And was this public school in Singapore? Wow. I mean, I'm so glad for my public school. You know, I went to CHIJ Topayo, which is like convent school, right? Oh, no, well, no, actually I went to um, uh, a neighborhood, as we call it, primary school. So I don't know if it was lower decile, 
um, but that was nearby to where we lived at the time in Woodlands. And so that was like pretty, a pretty big culture shock for me because I wouldn't say that English was the most spoken language at home, but it probably really helped my Mandarin because <laughs> I had to pick up Mandarin. And what was it like making friends and stuff? Because you would have gone in as a total Kiwi kid. And is it, I mean, I'm I'm assuming because in Malaysia it was completely two different worlds for me when I went back. Yeah. But at at nine years old, when I would have thought, you know, that's quite older and you're conscious of friendships and the people around you, what was that like? It was pretty hard as well. And I think I had quite a tough time, well, I had a tough time maintaining friendships in a sense. There was a lot of like drama, even when I was like 12 or before that. Um, there were a lot of interpersonal dramas between me and my friend group. So I did find friend groups that, you know, like I could relate to and really felt like I belonged in. But I think there was always this underlying tension of not being able to adjust, not being able to um, relate up until I went to CHIJ Topayo, which is a convent school, known to be a bit more westernised, very English-speaking um, and... You know, it wasn't until I I went there that I actually found a group of friends that have like you know I still my one of some of my best friends today, and you know the friends that I found there particularly my best friends that I'm still very close to we all bonded over the fact that we all felt a little bit different, or you know I've got a one mixed race biracial friend or well, she's more than biracial, but we all yeah I guess we bonded over our love for drama. Our love for Busted, the band, the British band. I know. <laughs> it was the Click bizarre. Five? Uh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, the Click. Oh my God. <laughs> you know what? The Click Five. Like, no one here knows who the Click Five is. It's so they funny. They were huge in Malaysia, bro. <laughs> they were everywhere. I actually saw them. Did you? Yeah, I saw I saw them when, when they had the new the new guy, Kyle, in. And we went and we got autographs. I just remember it was a whole thing. <gasps> oh my gosh. And Simple Plan. Simple. Oh gosh. Love Simple Plan. You know, I, I bring up Perfect, the song where I play it, just... Yes. You know, every once in a while. And, and just shut up, remember Yeah, oh my one? God, shut up. Oh, I remember I had a crush on this boy and then he wasn't interested in me. And I literally, on my Nokia, like 3310, ah, typed out the lyrics of the entire song and texted it to him. I don't even know how much, like, in prepaid that would have cost me. Did Were you obsessed? I don't know about you, but were you obsessed with song lyrics when yes, you were younger? Yes. I don't know. I don't know if this is a generation, not a gen. I wouldn't want to say generational thing because we're not that old. Come on. No. You know, but, like, um, I was really obsessed with lyrics as well and music. So music, for me, was, like, a big vehicle um, in order to you know, for self-expression as well. And yeah, so I think, you know, socially it was quite hard and acting and drama really helped me and music really helped me have a mode of expression in a society that I felt was quite restrictive. But, you know, it was a great education also. Like I wouldn't trade those years in for anything else. I just, I guess I did wish that at the time I had more support. Like I really think I should have been in counselling. I think all, me and my brother should have been in counselling as well, just to help ease, you know, that, that kind of... The transition. Yeah. Well, because I, this ties into my next question for you. What were mum and dad like about your passion in acting? I'm really lucky. So I will have to say I'm really privileged in the fact that my parents never really put any restrictions on me. But my dad always said you know, you need to be focused because there's no point being a jack of all trades, master of none. 
So I did like doing a lot of different things. I was very social. Um, and I think I had a habit and I still do, although I'm getting better of it, of spreading myself too thin, you know, cause I'm classic like Leo. I mean, my last name's Leo and I'm a Leo, right? I just want to do anything and everything, whatever catches my eye. You know, I love fun. I love having fun and I love adventures, um, and exploring things. And, um, so they were, they, they really encouraged me. And I think cause they, they could see how much I was struggling and, they knew that I'd always been particularly exuberant anyway. And anyway, my parents met doing a musical. Wow. Yeah, they were doing, I think, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh my gosh, yeah. my mum produced a version of that because she's a music teacher. Did she? Yeah, because she used to produce um, musicals for the Garden International School in Kwantan, which is where I was growing up. Mm. And that was one of the plays. And I remember it so clearly. Beautiful, beautiful musical. Does she come from a religious background? I mean, not that you um, have to. Quite like... conservative, but she is a piano teacher mm. by training. Um, but amazingly creative, talented woman. So big musical background on my end as well. So Angela that... Lloyd Webber? Yes. Growing yes. up with that. Yeah. Lots of music around me all the time. Exactly. And I think that is... Yeah, I don't know. My may I don't know if because my parents came, you know, their love story started actually from their background. Although I wouldn't say my my parents aren't really big into performance. Like, I have to really jostle them out of the house to go see like you know when we're in New York go go to see Broadway. Um, but they really um they didn't really put any restrictions on me except Dad wanted me to be focused, and he said instead of going to drama school when I came back to New Zealand, I want you to do a degree and then you can do whatever you want. Like, I want you to do an academic degree. Yeah. And so then I went to University of Auckland to do um, drama. And then I did a double major in sociology. Which actually, you know, I think that served me way better than drama school. Because I think that really helped me form my critical thinking. And it really gave me, like, rayo for what I had been feeling and struggling with the whole time. Just learning to think critically about everything from my Catholic upbringing to Western versus Asian cultures to what it means to be, like, Kiwi Asian essentially and you've got some Peranakan blood as well right? yeah I do and I think it's only like in the last couple of years that I've started to well actually only this year to really started to ask what that means and I was recently having a conversation with my auntie where I was asking about my mum's side of the family because I don't actually know that much about it but that is the real Nonya side I mean they all speak in Malay to each other but um yeah I had just had a lot of questions to do with matriarchs because, you know, I'm developing a cabaret about mothers. Yes. So really interested in this idea of, like, what what our whakapapa is, like, individually. And, um, yeah, if you look at the Nonya culture, it is a culture of matriarchs. But even within that culture, I'm learning that families are different. So grand, once grandma dies, dad can still take over. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, like, mother or who would then become the mother-in-law would have you know, huge amount of power per se. So yeah, it's really interesting learning about Nonya culture and specifically how that has impacted, I suppose, my own inherited trauma, if you like. Where is mum's side of the family? Are they in Malaysia? No, they're all in Singapore. They're all in Singapore. But I think my dad's side did come from Malaysia. Like my grandma comes from Malaysia on my dad's okay. side. But from, I think with mum, yeah couple of generations in Singapore. So the next question I had, I have to keep referring to it because oh, yeah, it was no, a please. long one. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Don't. Uh, ha has it been important to you to impart narratives that connect you to your heritage through your art? Yes. 
And I wouldn't, I think when I, even in my first like five years here in New Zealand, like back in New Zealand, I think I was still quite like chasing the white narrative. I wanted to, you know, I think people of color all have these experiences of internalized whiteness and wanting to be to want, fit in to fit in and we want to see ourselves as protagonists but I guess I always saw myself as a white protagonist in a weird way um and it was only when I did Roots with Proudly Asian Theatre you know that I really went well this is me standing on stage really owning that I'm quite different and I know I've always been different but maybe I have been living under this bubble that I could be the same as everyone else and I could follow that trajectory of like, you know, get an agent, go for these auditions, you know, get a big series, maybe go to the States. And now I'm finding that, you know, instead of wanting to be the same, of course, this narrative, everyone knows, but, you know, my specific story is, of course, what makes me unique, right? And Absolutely. that is coming with me finding my voice and learning how to express my politics. And so now all the all the work I make is more interested in things that I want to explore, I suppose. Um, but also theatrically, a lot of my um, training was done in Singapore and it borrows from a lot of Southeast Asian kind of theatre making. I mean, we studied Brecht and all that, th all, all of that stuff, but there was also a lot, uh, you know, a bit of puppetry work. Um, we studied Southeast Asian plays. We st studied Kuo Pao Kun. Um, and so I realized that my style of devising is very steeped in a more Southeast Asian kind of methodology, I suppose. And when I first came to New Zealand, it was quite hard to find devised theater, but I was just involved in the uni club, which did a lot of scripted work. So kind of with my collaborations with probably Asian theater and now kind of with my connections, you know, even our friendship and things like that, you know, kind of my widening of my community uh, my POC community as I'm focusing on my identity politics a bit more well that's just kind of made me realize that the way I like to work isn't entirely western per se you know and I think you know when we talked about roots that was so incredible that Thank really you. moved me that performance really and I wanted to know how did it feel because roots is a well-known Singaporean play by Oliver Chong mm -hmm. And you were the first female to play the role. Yeah. How did that feel? <gasps> to be honest, like, it felt great, but I was just really stressed <laughs> during the whole performance because it, it was such a challenge for me in terms of trying to reclaim my mother tongue, you know, because I can speak Mandarin, but especially after moving back to New Zealand, my and especially after my grandmother died, my use of Mandarin becomes a lot more limited. So, I mean, it, there's a whole part of the play where he talks about not knowing his dialect right and and to me that was really salient because I don't I can't speak Hainanese mm. and that's my father's side of the family I can't speak either Hainanese or Malay which actually would be my mother my real mother tongue mm. you know Mandarin is more of the standardized what's spoken and what you have to learn in schools but um it was really stressful in a sense of having to learn a lot of lines in a very short amount of time but also trying to find myself in the story so someone made a comment that you know Oliver Chong this is quite an expository, expositional story. And when he wrote it or when he devised it, he didn't devise it um, for anyone else to perform. Actually, when you read the script, I mean, it, it's my opinion, and I love, I love the story and I love the script, but it's not written in a way 
to be handed over to another performer so they can pick it up easily. It is just his words and his story. And the big challenge was trying to make that story my own and trying to find a theatrical language to communicate that in because it's not really written theatrically. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So it's not written theatrically. And I think... Um, I, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it because I know a lot of... They, it was a mixed response. A lot of people really didn't like it. Why didn't they like it? Because they felt it was too personal to Oliver or... I think convent, like the theatre conventions used might not have served the story the best, but it was a learning curve for me in Chai Ling. And I really, I'm really proud of the work we made and it was a lot of fun creating every single character. And it was a great exercise for me as an actor to have to perform this beast of a show Huge show, Amanda. Oh gosh, with the Multiple subtitles, characters, and everything. Well, was this the characters more of the the subtitles behind me? Remember? Yes. In both Mandarin and English, and the 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 craziest challenge was in memorizing Mandarin. I realized that the problem wasn't really the memorizing. The problem was the recall, because when you recall in a language that's not your native tongue, you might not necessarily recall it in the way it's written. You kind of trans you kind of translate it into your head. Mm-hmm. So I'd always trans I won't I don't think in Chinese. So when I'm thinking of my next line that's in Mandarin, I would think of it in English and translate it to Chinese from there, which is not what is written. So that was a struggle because these sentence structures are not necessarily the sentence structures I would have used if I was doing a direct translation. It just moved me so much and I love you know, the, the trying to find the heritage and the stories and the ancestry and the spiritual side of it. It was just beautiful. Well, it's so weird because now, like, what, three or four years on, I'm doing that with my mother's side. Like, I'm kind of trying to piece together my own papa, like, and interrogating my matrilinear, my matriarchal lineage. There's a lot of missing pieces because memory is such a unreliable thing and I think a lot of my mum's side of the family and you know just from the few aunties I've talked to and even my mother said I don't know why I can't remember these things and so whereas on my father's side we're actually compiling like the Leo family history but my mother's side I think because there's a lot of trauma actually a lot of um you know large family not a lot of money um my grandfather you know my grandmother, you know, just certain, you know, mental health issues, etc., etc. Um, it's really hard to, it's really hard to piece together. And I just learned that my, I think my grandmother's brother was a medium as well. Like, wow, all these really interesting things that I've never bothered to find out about because I have my dad's side of the family, and you know, we're all so obsessed about that. You know, we're always talking about that side and what's happening there. But yeah, this the cabaret has really given me a chance to interrogate my matri- my matriarchal lineage. So can you talk about Motherland? Yes. Um, so we're in development stages, like really, really early early stages of research and development. So I'm interviewing, including yourself, yes. um, 10 Asian women mm-hmm. and or anyone. Oh, no, actually I'm interviewing a few Tane as well, just for research purposes. Yep. And I'm, um, I'm really looking to find out how our mother's have informed our performance of gender and of ethnicity, if that makes sense. So Absolutely. I'm kind of, you know, my, my hypothesis is that our mothers or our mother figure or even our lack of mothers if we didn't have one, you know, 
our experience with our mother is our first experience of what it means to identify as a woman. It's our first reference point, really, as a woman and, you know, as a woman of color, I suppose, if your mother is the same ethnicity as you. And then that opens up for me so many interesting questions of what, you know, what the experiences of, of biracial POC are. So what happens if you are like Chinese Pakia, but your mother is Pakia? So how do you yes. construct your identity of what it means to be a Chinese woman if you don't have that reference from your mother? That's amazing, Amanda. I think that's going to do so, so well. It just sounds incredible. I hope so. It's it's kind of like a, I guess it is aiming to be a bit of like a documentary drama in a sense that each performer will be able to bring their own anecdotes and their own papa with them and use the mode of cabaret to investigate things that they want to. So I, I, it's going to be quite specific yet quite, um, of course, universal, but quite um, free in a sense. I want people to have a, I want performers to have agency to kind of excavate those really hard issues that they might not be able to do anywhere else. Cause th- and that's the thing about the, the cabaret right now. The question, I, I want to ask the hard questions, I suppose, of, you know, what is, what does it mean to call this an Asian cabaret? Yeah. And w- what are the different identities within this l- general label Asian? And I kind of want to address a bit of colorism in that as well. Like my experiences as a light skinned Chinese woman are going to be very, very different from your experiences as a darker skinned Sri Lankan woman. Mm. And I think in the Asian community, in Aotearoa especially, we're not great at having conversations about the colorism that happens within our own communities and also how we see ourselves as to iwi, how we place ourselves as, you know, I mean, I wouldn't call myself Pakia, but I would kind of identify with to iwi. But, you know, when we're, when we're talking about like, you know, the treaty, how do Asians, where do Asians, how do Asians feel about that? You know? And it's interesting you mentioned the term Asian because how I've seen it in a mainstream media context is Asian is often Chinese and then Indians and everyone else like Sri Lankan yeah. and it's never really discussed. It's all just these, like, I, I don't know how to liken it to like hitters, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So for instance, crazy rich Asians. Oh yes. And I know the comment from the movie was that it was an all Chinese cast. And if you watch it, cause I watch it the second time, did pick it up, pick it up the first time that the helpers, the drivers, and the security guards were dark and Indian, and the wealthy were all Chinese. And it was interesting to see how it was marketed as Asian being Chinese and then everyone else. Yeah, and so me and, um, along with Nathan, well, Nathan Joe wrote it, Yellow Peril Productions, we did I Am Rachel Chu, right? Yep. Which was a deconstruction of crazy the book crazy rich asians yes or was it the movie the movie because there are there are actually indian characters in the books as yeah, well, well that, that's the thing it and wasn't brought into the movie for some reason no and there is like there's a sultan and um also there was you know a thai character i think yeah and when i actually read the books which i kind of loved it was like, i loved the books it was like trashy chick lit it i was have so all good <laughs> i yes. it was so good and i was like okay the books have way more diversity than the movie yes. this yes. is really strange yeah this is a really strange thing and you know like in our cast we had ravi you know who's um malaysian indian and we, we were asking the questions during the show of I'm Rachel Chu of whether we wanted to head on talk about 
you know, like be like, why isn't there more representation or to use the text in a way that places the body in the center. So it, instead of actually being a, a academic critique per se, well, actually it was pretty academic to me, but instead of being a really on the nose critique of crazy rich Asians, the idea, right, was to juxtapose uh, the, the the journey of Rachel to the protagonist onto ourselves so we could start exploring what would it look like what would crazy rich Asians or what would the narrative of Rachel True look like if we put ourselves in in that narrative if we were represented right if it was a story about ourselves mm. so yeah crazy rich Asians I mean for me like I'm not gonna lie, I loved it when I went to the cinema. It was great seeing like Pierre Pung and stuff I in it. I know, I was like from the Pierre Pung days, and I was so excited to just see familiar faces. Selena Chan. Yes, it was just great. It, it it was a beautiful movie, and I mean, I watched it like three times. Yeah. So you, you know, you were Sri Lankan. Did you love it? Oh yeah, and I could relate to so much of the culture as well. And um, Michelle Yeoh, you know, of she's, course. yeah absolutely and i grew up watching her and just it was just great to see the asian faces because i am asian and this is a culture i completely relate to even with the lack of representation in the movie um it's not far off the datins and the datin series and you know all the rich and the richer and it's it was it really hit it on the head i think (laughs) but it was this interesting the conversation we were having around that was you know that we're having now is about the convergence of national versus ethnic identity right and like as much as i enjoyed i loved the movie i didn't cry because nathan did ask me he's like did you cry i was like no no, i didn't cry either no but my lots of laughs my my, like beautiful parker friend next to me one of my best friends she did cry but i don't know if it's that from like watching me like have you know i in in that movie i felt so free because it's my hometown to be like oh my god yes that's Selena, that's Pierre Pung, you know. Um, but there was this undercurrent of, you know, my friend group is not represented mm. in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, like, it's weird because Singapore is very diverse. There's a lot of racial tension. Well, that was my next question. Oh, yeah. Because, well, growing up in Malaysia, I've only ever been to Singapore twice in my life. Mm. And my mum used to travel to Singapore a lot in the 60s, 70s, because um, we had family there, I think. But I only went twice in my entire life. Mm. So I never really knew what was happening across the ditch in terms of race relations. I think... You guys got your own... (laughs) We've got our own problems. I mean, you've got... Yeah. But I wondered what it was like in Singapore. What are race relations like there? (laughs) Where to get me started? There is a lot. I mean, and with the most recent election, um, there was a lot of um, cordero around, you know, uh, discriminate discrimination against minorities in Singapore, and you know, Chinese are the dominant ethnicity there, and then you've got your Malays, Indians, or your other, and I'm doing air quotation marks. Yeah. Um, you know, which is Eurasian, Caucasian, etc that's so bad i'm just dismissing a whole bunch of um that but uh you know there there was a lot of talks in politics we had i think it's raisha from the workers party she came out and or a statement that she'd made a couple of years ago about you know minorities facing discrimination you know it came it resurfaced and then there were police reports made against her because there's laws in singapore against inciting racial tension so there was this huge um I mean, this conversation has been bubbling in Singapore for years. And I guess for people who are, you know, who are, I don't like 
the term woke but yeah the maybe the woke are left i don't even like those terms anyway but people who i mean minorities in singapore will be able to tell you their experience right mm. but uh it's really i think singaporeans are were are really reluctant to have this conversation about the racism that occurs in singapore and casting in in all areas and when you were growing up in Singapore, did you feel it too, as someone who was in the majority race to the minority? Um, did I, you notice it? Yeah, I noticed comments. And also, I really, no, I mean, for me, actually, um, more than just discrimination against Malays and Indians, um, it was more, it was the whole domestic market of employing Filipino and Indonesian maids. Like, the whole idea of importing labor and having a live-in maid that's not paid amazingly and often very treated very badly yeah and like having one day off a month mm. you know and like i mean growing up because we had a small house i shared a room with my helper in fact we shared the same bunk bed you know but that wasn't great for her because she doesn't have a separate space and i just think these kind of working conditions like i to me now living in new zealand it seems bizarre that we have live-in maids who are there 24 7 and although they technically don't need to be working between the hours of like 8 p.m or whenever they go to bed to when they wake up at six it's ridiculous and i don't even think they're paid that much they're not they're not right well often not i don't know if the you know there's more regulation there now but i remember in the papers because there was like a period where there was a lot of media attention around how indonesian maids were being treated in households and there was a family where the mother like took an iron and oh yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Singapore yeah well that was a huge thing Singapore has it as well the iron burning and then like peed on her or something it was just really really awful and bad and um well I never had a live-in mate so I wouldn't know what that experience is like but I have I did see growing up people around me not treating their like maids really well and yeah definitely teaches you a lot about how to treat people which is nicely i know, <laughs> you know but and even with like respect. even the standard of how you treat your helper or your maid in singapore is quite i i feel quite low you know and everyone's crammed in these tiny apartments and there's like no regulation like at the time are, nothing no. to protect these people and they've got families and sick family members at home that they have to support with their like i mean they have to surrender income. their passport to their employer yeah which to me is like wow it's to make sure they don't, don't run, run away, away. and uh, i mean the whole idea now just seems so archaic. Well, my dad, so my dad recently retired as chief psychologist of Singapore prisons. So his work has always been in rehabilitation. Um, and recently he had said to me that, you know, I think you're, th you are like me in a sense that you've always found your thrills, not in extreme sports, but in social justice in philosophy in art. And, I am very grateful, I think, to both my parents and um, their worldview. You know, I, I, I don't know if, like, I innately, as a young child, and I don't know if you feel this as well, was always able to sense inequality or if it was a taught thing. I mean, I definitely think, I mean, from the sounds of it, like... No, never really noticed it, never thought about it wondered why some certain friends were more privileged and had the attitude of privilege when mm. I didn't because mm. I wasn't getting the same rights or attention. Mm. No, not till very recently had I actually thought about it, Amanda. It took me this long. No, no, but actually, like, <laughs> the I, whole idea of privilege as well for me didn't really sink in up until probably, like, 
16 or 17. And even that, that was just a clocking of um, class privilege. And then there was some form of race privilege that I knew I had, right? Being the majority in Singapore. But then also as kind of feeling like outsider to Chinese culture in it. Well, I mean, that's actually not fair to say. I've always felt Chinese, actually. And even when I was growing up in New Zealand. So here's the interesting thing. In primary school, I loved being Chinese. I knew I was Chinese. And for me, uh, you know, I went to St. Joseph's Takapuna. And it was very multiracial. Um, having said that, there was very little Māori or Pacifica in my school. Um, but my parents had started, like, the Asian Catholics group. And it was this fun thing that this extra activity that I got to go to that my Pākehā friends didn't, weren't really there. But, of course, they came along every now and then. So, to me, actually, having, you know, being of an ethnic minority was something to celebrate. Like, it was something, it was an excite. it was almost like this exciting privilege that you had because it allowed you to have all these extra gatherings that other people didn't get to have. And it wasn't until, I guess, I moved back to New Zealand that I I was like, oh, you know, as as a minority as a Chinese minority, you're going to get a lot less roles. But also, living in a bigger body that's not the standard size, eight or six or whatever, that further narrows your roles down. So, did you have discrimination in New Zealand when you came back? Yeah, but I think, I'm again, I'm really lucky. I, actually, up until um the night I watched Crazy Rich Asians, I didn't get a lot of very overt racial slurs yeah. thrown at me. Um, I think maybe the racism that I have experienced is a lot more um, insidious and it's a lot more of a suggestion of it's more of an othering rather than overt racial slurs and and that's just racism for you right it doesn't have to you know someone doesn't have to call me a chink that just because you're not calling me a chink on the street doesn't mean that you don't have certain preconceived notions Mm. about me and I think in terms of casting going for roles as an actor what roles I could play like I can count on my hand the number of times I've gone for a role that hasn't stated we want, you know, um, Chinese or we would like to cast people of all ethnicities and diverse backgrounds. Like I, I don't, I have never gone up for like a standard brief that does not mention ethnicity mm. or even body type for that matter, which is so ridiculous. Yeah. Like the only general briefs that I know everyone including all my Pākehā friends you know we're auditioning for the same role is when they specifically say oh yeah all diversity you know all ethnicities welcome how do you get used to that I think you just realize like I don't know if it's getting used to per se but it's just always it's the way it's been it is yeah so that's just the reality and how do you undo it but I think with the work you're doing and with Motherland, you mm. are in a way undoing it because you're building a beautiful platform. I hope so. And this is the idea is that like, you know, in terms of musical theatre, musicals, cabarets, etc., performance, people are always saying, you know, big theatre companies are always saying, but we don't know anyone. We don't know any people of colour or from this ethnic minority to do this role with a skill. So Motherland for me is a way of being like, okay, here are not only three performers of colour that you you have to choose from, who are really highly skilled, got great careers, or are emerging artists. Here are three composers too, three different composers. So I'm giving you, I'm doing the, you know, I'm doing the mahi, so you guys can enjoy the diversity tick box treats, you know. Yeah. And I think the way around that is really asking ourselves, really, ah, really decolonizing our view. And that's a big word for me. I think that shifted from me 
solely from diversity and representation it actually is moving to a space of decolonizing everything from the from what i buy so even like my active wear i'm really big at plugging hine you know this amazing yes. activewear brand you know refuse to buy from lululemons um etc but decolonizing is also a way for me to honor titiri like as to iwi as you know i'm first gen here but as an immigrant here i still want to be able to honor maori honor the treaty and all that kind of things within being a chinese kiwi asian in aotearoa what well, so my next question you answered it and i would know the answer to this already but it was how important is it for you to elevate minority platforms through your art oh so important i think it has become the central co-papa of my life actually even in terms of recently looking at socially who i hang out with um you know actually in the first five years and i love it you know you'd see a lot of pakia in my friend groups and i still have you know very very close pakia friends but i think you know, even in terms of who I dated, I have this, I realized that I'd become, you know, fallen into a pattern of going for Pakia men and never considering POC men. And I've had to really sit back, you know, in my corridor with myself and ask, why is that? What, is there something in you that still wants to assimilate? You know, and I was talking about this with, you know, people and I hope that it will be in the cabaret, but this idea that, you know, if I, married or dated you know a white parker boy you know then then maybe i would feel like i am a kiwi i am you know that multi-ethnic kiwi girl who has links to parker who gets to go see you know their parker parents down in the mount i get all of that like western you know that western lifestyle that i grew up really wanting and not having so yeah i think it's important not only in my mahi but in socially I've, I've been trying to actually give a lot more time to my POC friends that I might not have like a year or two ago and I think that's been really important in asking myself or realizing that actually even when I do hang out with my closest Pakia friends there is a level of censorship I do place on myself you know I do censor myself in certain ways to be a bit more uh, to to not fall into that stereotype of the the angry minority woman or you know yeah yeah I but I, I realize and truthfully truth bombs right but you know I think around a lot of my Parker friends I do censor myself like that and it's actually only and I you, you know what if you asked me three years ago I would have said no way like I'm totally myself but again I feel like I am a different self around my POC friends oh girl yeah I mean, makes me think of, so when I went into my first proper, like, corporate job, I was Abby for four years. Oh, you were Abby? <laughs> I was Abby. And it was because one of the guys who owned the company, it was a small company, and he, I said my name was Abby the first day, and he just called me Abby, and because I was wanting to impress and be a part of the team, and You don't want to upset the status quo, right? Yes. So I was just Abby. So then when I joined my job now, it was Arby. And you corrected people? Yes, but also the company I'm with now is much more diverse and mm. open to that narrative and they're awesome. And I never ever felt like an imposter, but that's how I felt in the job before that. Well, because I was freaking Abby, that didn't help. But imposter syndrome, right? Like, yeah. I think a lot of POC have this, you know, like, 
you know, when when you are in a predominantly Pakia space, you know, you're just waiting for somebody to turn around and make a comment about your heritage that's going to make you feel like, I don't belong here, you know? All the time. And I'm really lucky in terms of my name, like Amanda Grace Leo, it's all very, you know, it's very Latin roots, very Western. You can't, I, you wouldn't probably be able to tell from my name that, you know, I'm Chinese. So nice. I've been, yeah. you know, and, and that see, that's a privilege that I have and that I know a lot of, like, my POC friends don't have. You know, not, even from, like, things like job applications or tenancy applications, not having that barrier. Well, it's interesting because, well, my full name is Abirami. Mm. And my my photography brand was called Side Project. For, yeah, and you changed it to Rami. Changed to Rami. Man, the discussions behind the scenes with that one. Really? So the Pakeha side were like, well, maybe you should keep it to side project because it's more relatable and you'll target a wider audience. And then the brown side were like, change it to Rami because your name is Abirami and it's what you're actually doing. You're photographing minority women. You're telling stories. It is who you are. So there I'm does come I a choice, right? It. But I think in everything that we do artistically, there comes a choice in terms of whether we want, you know, whether we want to embrace our identity and for that to become our brand in terms of branding. I think there's a choice that we we make, and and there's almost like a, a dying to the idea of relatability because I really like what you said there. Like maybe sometimes we do kind of pander to kind of more like a whitewashed western world and change elements or names or parts of ourselves to become more relatable to a white audience right and then there comes a point i think you know for a lot of poc creatives where you make the decision to stand in your otherness and to not pander to that and not and and to have faith that your content will still be relatable you'll you know. find your tribe you'll find your tribe and also you know like I, I'm finding that, yes, we all have universal qualities, but actually universe, universality is found in specificity. And, you know, I could be telling a story specifically about what it's like to grow up with a Chinese mother, a Chinese Peranakan mother who's Catholic, and someone else. And, and through situating that even in a Chinese environment, it doesn't mean that someone who's not Chinese won't be able to relate to certain aspects of that. And one of my favorite moments, I think, of or the feedback that I received from I'm Rachel Chu, there was like a little game we played. I don't know if you remember where um, we started making a game of like Asian parent stereotypes. It was like a we had to like fire off like, you know, one by one Asian family stereotypes. And a Pakia friend said to me, I loved that because there were moments where I went, oh, my God. Yeah, that's me. Even though it's an Asian parent stereotype, that's my mom. And then there were other times or other stereotypes that came up where she was like, oh, wow, that happens. I would never have thought that that's a thing. So it actually allowed a window in which for Pakia to both relate, but also to reflect on how different culturally and our cultural upbringings are. And I really thought that that was a really successful scene or a successful, you know, if, if that was the feedback we got, that is the kind of work that I want to make. I want it to be relatable, but I want it to be very specific mm. because everyone's experience is specific like even our you know as i was saying earlier our experiences as minorities are different like i technically belong to the model minority class right the chinese working class in, in new zealand and aotearoa who 
you know, they're great business, they're hard workers, they're business people, you know, they don't speak up, they don't make a fuss. So even within that, like, our experiences are very different. Oh, Amanda. (sighs) Well, my last question to you Mm. was, what's next? Oh, Uh, what's next for me is, well, still Motherland. So working on that, working on getting the legs up and going for that. I'm also on my yoga journey. Yes. So I'm also trying to decolonize my wellness practice, right? So I think at some point I'd really like to go down, and I'm going to say this on air so y'all can hold me accountable, but at some point I would actually love to go do Afi Yoga, um, Chase Tapatu down in Wellington. He does an amazing ho'ora yoga like course. And regardless of whether I want to be a teacher, I kind of want to... um, yeah, I want to go and learn a lot more. And I've just been doing a wonderful critical yoga podcast group. It's like a book club, but with podcasts um, at Mahi Yoga in Newmarket. So you kind of sit around and critically talk about different aspects of wellness and yoga, specifically cultural appropriation, spiritual bypassing. So I think the big the big journey for me, apart from my artistic practice, is my spiritual practice. So kind of trying to detangle, I think, from my Catholic roots and like real Western Catholic um, ideology of what's right and what's wrong and what's evil and what's good. Um, my, my journey right now spiritually is really kind of getting to know my body and more than celebrating my body, learning how to work with my body. Because I don't know about you, I feel like, you know, and everyone can probably relate to this, we're always taught to fight against our bodies, to beat our bodies into submission at the gym, you know restricting food stress and stress and you know like kind of engaging in the space of yoga has allowed me to have a different relationship with my body where I, I realize the shift for me is instead of trying to disengage or control it I want to work with it and I want to learn how to listen to my body and what it's telling me because I do I am really starting to sink into the idea that we are all born with all the tools we need and our bodies are amazing things, you know, and he- healing, etc. And I want to learn to work with my body. And, you know, that also works with like a yoga lens of how do we make yoga more accessible, you know, and move away from a very ableist asana yoga practice. And, you know, the, even the way we think about yoga, how do we make yoga and the tenets of yoga accessible to people with different bodies, different ability levels, etc., etc. So the next big journey is really to um, to really keep on finding or refining that connection with my body and finding out what works for me in terms of fitness and consumption, right? Mm. So that's the exciting thing, I hope. I hope, and uh, hopefully some film projects. I still have a short film that I that's turning into a feature that I need to submit and make. And also a documentary. I'm really interested in doing a documentary actually on, um, what was it called? It's kind of like a rejection of fat phobia or people who are using the label thick to, as their brand. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in how people are rejecting fat phobic identities and embracing their thickness in Aotearoa you know, in today's climate to actually further their brand. I think that's really fascinating. And Tales of Nainai? Oh, yeah. Sorry, Tales of Nainai. Help. Um, so that's season... Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, we just started uh, recording. I was in the studio yesterday for season two of Tales of Nainai, which is really exciting. 
That's so, amazing, Amanda. I'm, I'm really blessed. I think... Uh, you're very talented and you're very smart. Thank and you. And you work extremely hard. And I, I, I'm just... Yeah. Thank you. Utmost respect. But I still, but I still want to say, like, yes, I do. But I, I think I also have been here at the right time, right place, you know? But, it, and you know, and I am also very grateful for all the people that came before me that allowed me in, in what is a difficult climate to, to do the work that I'm doing. And, you know, four or five years ago, I don't know if I could have seen that happening. But, yeah, I've got a lot to be, I have a lot to be grateful for. Yeah. Well, know? Amanda, we have come to the end of our chat. Fantastic. Well, th- thank you so much for having me, Avi. Thank you, you know. so much for being here and being part of this. And I can't wait for Motherland. <gasps> gonna be there for all the shows yes please because you came for my first cabaret do you remember yeah, i do i remember that one i can't believe you came there so <laughs> I like come to lots of your shows you come, yeah you come to like almost all of my shows and yeah. it's really amazing because you're, you're so talented and you're worth and you know me i'm such a homebody but girl you are worth it girl thank you and also i'm really excited for this podcast because like literally wanted a pot like i think I mean, I was very blinded, but I really was like, where are all the POC podcasts from Aotearoa coming out? Especially in things like wellness or whatever. And it's really great to have more POC just yeah. podcasts talking about this stuff. So, Totoko, to you and your work, it's great. I mean, I'm just excited for whatever you do. Thanks, Amanda.